Welcome to the Enchanted Ears Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we'll be discussing Disney the 1950s. So it's the next episode in our continuing part series of Disney Decades. Yeah, Disney Decades. So we've already done the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Got pretty interesting in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, it continues to get interesting <laughs> in the 50s. So it it'll be fun to kind of discuss that. But the, before I would I would dare say t- today there is the birth of a legacy. Wow! Mm-hmm. If that's not a good tease, I don't know what is. <laughs> so, but before we get into that, um, let's discuss. I mean, not literally dis- today in the 1950s, I guess. But before we get into that, let's discuss Disney news as we always do. So this actually uh, came out last week, but it came out after we recorded. The episode for last week but this is pretty interesting news so it was announced that kevin feige is now moving over to star wars so he's not leaving marvel completely but he's going to be producing a new star wars movie alongside uh, lucasfilm's kathleen kennedy so this is pretty interesting that they're pulling feige to help produce the star wars movies now so i, I think that it bodes well because i think that maybe they'll be a little bit better at least in the last movie yeah, it's interesting, and they didn't announce whether this is the because Ryan Johnson's working on a new trilogy, the Game of Thrones showrunners are working on a new trilogy. So there was no announcement whether the movie Feige's working on is one of those, or he's working on his own movie separately. So, but to your point of this being a good move, and I think it being better, the one thing I feel that Star Wars has lacked, and its issue is lack of world building. Every movie is about the same three characters. It's about Luke, Leia, Han, and I guess Anakin to an extent if you include the prequels. So it's the Skywalker family. The problem they've had is trying to branch off of that world. So the solo prequel didn't do great. Again, it's around the same character, about stuff we really didn't need to know. Rogue One did okay, but it kind of tied in. They're going to need to expand the universe. If they want to keep Star Wars going like they are with Marvel... You're going to have to develop a lot of interesting characters. And Star Wars has a very big catalog with all of their animated shows and books. So bringing in Foggy to help, I think, is great because I think he'll be able to help with what Star Wars needs most, and that's expanding the universe. Yeah, I I would argue with you that it's not necessarily the world building that's the problem. It's the character development that's the problem. Um, Creating those lovable characters because... I'd say that Rogue One out of the I don't I didn't like Rogue One, but Rogue One had several characters in it that were really likable. Um, K2SO, I think K2SO was a really good addition. And but then the issue with K2SO was that by the end she was gone. So I don't think she's he was the robot. Huh? K2SO, he, the robot. You he, mean? Yeah. Yes, he yeah. was gone. Voiced by Alan Tudyk. Yes. Listen to our episode about all his great Disney roles. Yes. But you're right. Yeah, everybody died at the end. But that was kind of my point. Is the world is that they need to have they need to build out other characters that we care about so that they can keep these movies going. My suggestion is just to get Alan Tudyk and he can play a character similar to what he played on Firefly but play, I don't know, be in this world. I think Alan Tudyk is just a great addition to anything. Yeah. Well, I joked on Facebook that we need to get ready now for 22 movies, interconnected movies that end with all of your favorite Star Wars characters fighting in one giant battle. There we go. I could see that happening. A giant lightsaber battle? That would be insane. 
Yeah, so it, it's interesting, and we'll see what happens. I mean, some the the additional sequels have been rumored on to be about the Knights of the Old Republic, so going back thousands of years before um, the Star Wars movies take place. You know, other ones looking at, at, at different eras. So it it should be pretty interesting, and I think it's a a a good move to have to have Kevin Feige move over. Yeah, speaking of uh, Feige, how about that Spider Man? All is right in the world. Spider-Man is back home where he belongs. It's his homecoming, maybe, could you say? I like it. <laughs> I like it. So Spider-Man, they, 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 did, they reached a deal, so he'll be back in two movies now. There'll be a sequel to Far From Home, so they'll be producing a third Spider-Man movie, and then he will also... A trilogy? Yeah, so he'll also show up in, in one additional MCU movie. So it's, it's just a two-movie deal. They reached an agreement. Now, the rumor is these are going to be the last two movies they are going to write Spider-Man out of the MCU because of this. Because the agreement says that Sony can use Spider-Man in their movie universe as well. So he's essentially oh. going to be in two separate movie universes. So they can have him in Venom and any other movies that, that they have with those characters. And it doesn't have to fit continuity with Ooh. the MCU. Wow. Yeah. So, so the rumor is that they're bringing Spider-Man back. They're going to use him, again, in, in essentially two movies. So we're not sure the other movie that he's going to pop up in, whether that's Black Panther 2 or, or Captain Marvel or, or another Avengers movie, but that they'll at least give him a proper send-off so it's not going to be abrupt like it was after Far From Home and like then she just disappeared. Though. Because we finally, I think, found the people's Spider-Man. And now we're realizing that probably it's likely that Sony's going to take the people's Spider-Man and ruin him. Because if he continues to go on in different movies, I just don't see them ha- hiring the talent and treating him with the um, respect that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has. Well, we'll see. I mean, and there's still time. Maybe they'll reach another deal and ex- extend it. I mean, th- this definitely pushes it out to, you know, five, six years down the road until Spider-Man is out of the MCU if he is, because it's going to be... July of 2021 is the next Spider-Man movie. They announced that. And then, again, he's going to show up in one other movie. And so, again, that's probably another five years before that movie shows up. So there is some time that they could reach another agreement and keep him in. Or, again, maybe they write him out um, you know, in some unique way with the multiverse. Maybe he goes to another universe, and that's how he ends up in the, the Venom movie. So it, it should be pretty interesting to see. But it is good to have him back. It did not last long. So, I'm sorry. I'm just mentally backtracking. Did I call the Spider-Man Tom Hiddleston? Tom Holland. Tom Holland is the people's Spider-Man. Sorry. All right. So the moving to theme park news, the Flower and Garden Festival dates got announced for next year. I'm so excited. So it's going to be 90 days. So it runs from March 4th to June 1st of next year. And they announced um, because they're going to be opening the Ratatouille ride at some point next year. We get a Remy. Yeah, there's going to be a Remy topiary and a Ratatouille garden in the France Pavilion. A Remyary. So that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that that should be pretty interesting. And uh, just this last week, the Skyliner officially opened to rave reviews. It seems to be a big hit. Everybody loves it. But with that, there's a ton of Skyliner merch, and it yes. all looks incredible. Yes. There's, a re- there's some really awesome Christmas ornaments that they're little Skyliner cars, which yes. we have to get when we, we go we, down in we November. We checked them out. We already, we already have picked out which one we're going to get. 
So I'm pretty excited. It actually goes in really well because we have, um, I don't remember what those things are called, but we have a collection of little like Disney and Marvel uh, ornaments. They're not like the regular, oh my gosh, what are they? Kind of like cartoony. Yeah, they're not Christmas like ornaments. the realistic ones that Hallmark has. Right. Yeah, so, that, so it's pretty interesting. But again, everybody really seems to like it. it. It seems to be a unique mode of transportation, provides some really great views over Epcot. The approach into Art of Animation is supposed to be really beautiful coming in over Hourglass Lake. So it, it seems to be that, that they've done well. So I wouldn't be surprised if you know, popularity stays up that Disney announces fairly shortly the rumored expansions to this of taking it out to Animal Kingdom or taking it out to Disney Springs. So should be oh, should be yeah. pretty interesting to see. I think that we'll get that news in the next couple of years. Definitely. So, all right. So moving on to our main topic, uh, again, like we mentioned at the top of the show, continuing with our Disney decades, talking about the 1950s. So in the 1940s, like we said, it was, you know, a pretty interesting time. There was a lot going on. There was the war, there were union issues. I mean, it, it was a really up and down decade. It started it was an area, an era of unrest. It, yeah. And it, it was up and down because it started well, the middle, like you said, there was a lot of unrest, but then towards the end of the decade, things started to pick back up, up for the again, company. Yeah. Right. And, and it rolls kind of right into the 1950s, which is a really big decade for the company. Yeah. And it sees one of Disney's bigger hits. It's more of a return to form. So the first movie to come out during that decade is Cinderella. And Cinderella is really well received. In fact, when it comes out, at the time it it hit um the studio was actually four million dollars in debt so they were not doing so hot and it actually came in at about 543 million dollars adjusted for inflation so it did really really well yeah and and you mentioned i mean the studio was in debt we've talked about this i think in every decade so far that they were strapped for cash Mm -hmm. basically from the beginning they were tight for money and this decade to an extent there, there were money problems, but I, I think this decade is kind of the turning point well, yeah. where, where the company, they really, I don't want to say they changed their focus, but their focus changes a little bit and it grows and it does help them financially. But like, but as you were saying, I mean, Cinderella did do very well, fi- over 500 million. I mean, adjusted for right. inflation. And- it, as you were saying, this this helped to this was the biggest commercial hit for the studio since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And if you listen back to it was 1930s episode, Snow White, I believe, was in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, 1937. So back that long ago, so it was 10 plus years ago. It's the biggest commercial success since them, and it helps to reverse their fortunes. So it really did well. It received three Academy Award nominations, including Best Music original song for Bippity Bappity Boo. So it did really well. Yeah. So there, there were a lot of pretty iconic movies that came out in this decade. So I think, I think as we kind of talk through the decade and we try to go chronologically to an extent, and I, I, and I think it, it kind of follows this, but you know, th- there's a couple, there's kind of like three big areas that happen in this decade. So you have movies, you know, there, there's some you know important things that happened in the movies early in the decade and also late in the decade. 
TV, so this is a big decade for TV as Disney enters television and then theme parks. So, you know, we'll kind of try to go through chronologically to an extent, but some of it does overlap a little bit. So, as you mentioned, 1950 Cinderella, 1951, you have Alice in Wonderland. Right. So, these are all animated movies. So, with Alice, they actually had unsuccessfully been trying to develop this into a movie since the 1930s. So they had been trying to do it. And finally they brought it back up off the shelf and they actually intended it to be a live action movie. But Disney finally eventually decided to make it an all animated feature, but it was a complete flop uh, initially. And the interesting part about it, speaking of how we're going to dip back and forth between movies and TV is that Disney started showing it on television as the first, one of the first episodes of his his TV series Disneyland and there it was a big success. So it met that success later after its release date. Particularly people liked it during the psych- psychedelic era. Right. And then, and you mentioned live action. So, you know, another important milestone of the decade in 1950 was Disney's first full live action uh, movie. So, you know, Disney does a lot of live action movies today, but their first one was actually 1950 with Treasure Island based on the Robert Louis Stevenson's novel. And it, it did okay. It did about $4 million in the box office in 1950, which equates to around $43 million today. So, you know, and by no means was it anywhere on the level of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it was a decent movie. I mean, I think. You know, $43 million in today may not sound like a lot because we have so many blockbusters that that make hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. But, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago, if you had a movie that made $40 million, that was pretty good. So I think, you know, in terms of being their first live action movie, it, it was somewhat of a success. And, and they did, I think, build some confidence from it because they had a few more live action movies, you know, throughout the decade as well. Right, right. And... Treasure Island, I mean, Treasure Island is a book that they typically, I mean, you might read it in school, but I, it, it is a, it's a movie or a book that was adapted into this movie that really, it has a cultural um, importance to us. A lot of our rumors about pirates comes from it, and I'm sure that Disney helped to kind of perpetuate those. So I'm sure that this, it was a, it was a pretty big success for them. Right. So some of the other live action movies of the decade, 1952, you had uh, The Story of Robin Hood and His Merry Men, 1953, The Sword and the Rose, and then 1954. So they did a live-action movie, uh, one a year. So 1954, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yes. Go ride it in Japan. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, yeah. So Tokyo Disney Sea, they have the, the ride based off of that, <clears throat> off the, the Jules Verne novel there. Uh, and that is one of the, the better rides they have there. So. Uh, Moving back to the animated movies, so we already talked about Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. So 1953, we get Peter Pan. So that's so you you figure Cinderella, Peter Pan, those are two, you know, kind of really iconic Disney movies. Right, exactly. And Peter Pan, which I did not know before I looked this up, it was based on a play. Did you did you happen to know that? No, I did not know that beforehand. Yeah, it was based on a play by J. M. Barry, and it was called Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up or Peter and Wendy. And I'm not surprised because really, if you look at 
Yeah. Most of Disney movies, they were either based off of fairy tales or novels. You know, I mean, Cinderella, yeah. Alice in Wonderland's a book. Even Treasure Island, that's a book. Right. You know, it so doesn't it's really not, seem it's not like surprising. they carried their own original ideas. They put their own spin long. on it. I mean, they, yeah. they took they took an existing idea and put an original spin on it. I mean, it wasn't like it was just a straight copy, but they really did pull from existing kind of storytelling. Right. I wonder what the deals were back in the day because I mean I'm sure with these fairy tales like the grim fairy tales I'm sure they were in the public domain so you're allowed to touch them you're allowed to change them however you want but as far as this play thing is concerned I wonder if they contacted J.M. Barry and had a special think, deal worked I out. I think copyright him. laws were a lot different. I mean I know it changed sometime in the 1920s 1930s because anything before I can't remember if it's 1920 or 1930 today is essentially you can't copyright it. It's all in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think things were a lot different back then because those those laws just kind of came into effect relatively recently within the past few decades. So so yeah. So I, I don't think they had the same you know type of things today. And again, I mean, you you could go and make a movie on you know Treasure Island if you got if you went off the source novel. You know, you could do something with that today because right. it came out in 1883. You couldn't do it based off the Disney movie because that's obviously you know copyrighted by Disney. Yeah. Um, also, that book was actually made it like that play was also a novel. He returned it into a novel in 1911. Peter Pan was the last film released by RKO Radio Pictures. This was before Disney founded Buena Vista Distribution. And also, it's the last film that the nine old men worked on together as directing animators. Yeah. And I think this is an important point of Disney developing, you know, Buena Vista Distribution to be distributor of their own movies because throughout this decade, you really see the modern Disney company forming where they're starting to realize the value of their intellectual property. I mean, they've already started merchandising with Mickey and, and all of the other characters, but they're starting to realize, you know, hey, we created these movies. We need to own the distribution. We need to own the, you know, we own the content. We need to own the distribution. We need to own the merchandise. So it, it really, it makes sense that they start their own distribution arm because it's it's all about building that kind of virtuous circle that just mm-hmm. that just keeps feeding itself. Um, so yeah, so it is interesting how how you can see the Disney of the day kind of really developing, you know, in the early fifties here. I'd say it's like their teenage era, maybe, maybe early teens, preteens. Okay, sure. <laughs> We're seeing them develop. Uh, yeah, I was sure. Dealing with- like it's a human. So 1955, we had Lady and the Tramp, which they're remaking as a live action movie coming out soon. And th- this was a, a really interesting movie because this was the first one that used a new uh, film type, right? Right, right. It's the CinemaScope widescreen fil- film process. So there's, this, this is the first movie that they used or they created using this particular technique. Right. And essentially what this is, is kind of like widescreen. I mean, it, it it's probably the easiest way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of describe it is the it was it was a lens that was developed that allowed the image to be wider on the screen. So kind of like the modern widescreen that we have today, that aspect ratio that you have at movie theaters was kind of developed and started by this cinescope huh. lens. So that that's kind of the I mean it's more technical than that, and I'm sure I'm oversimplifying it, mm-hmm. but that's that's kind of the the gist I got from it and kind of the easiest way because it, it's still. Well, those lenses aren't used today um, because like Panasonic invented, you know, new lenses and things. It The, 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 for, the format, yeah, the format is still kind of used today. So Interesting. So, and again, Lady and the Tramp, 
has source material. So Lady and the Tramp was developed off of a cosmopolitan magazine story called Happy Dan, the, C- the C- Cynical Dog by Ward Green. Again, Interesting. no idea. Didn't know that. Yeah, I had no idea. And um, it was pretty successful beside, despite receiving some negative reviews. So it didn't do too, too bad. Yeah. And that's, I mean, a lot of movies today even, I think, are based off of stories or newspaper articles that you don't even realize. I mean, the the movie Tag that came out a few years ago, that was based on a Wall Street Journal profile oh, that, yeah. that somebody read and they said, hey, that would make a great movie. So and there, there's movies out today that you think there's no way that's you know, a true story that you'd be surprised to hear that that's based off of some article. So, and then the, the last uh, kind of major movie was 1959. So right at the end of the decade. So we'll kind of close out the movies here in this section, but that was with Sleeping Beauty. Right. And how do you think that this movie did, Joe? What would, what would be your prediction? Like just based on what you know? Um, I don't, I mean, I think it probably did well. It's definitely, I mean, a lot of people know Sleeping Beauty, but mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say it was as popular as, like the Cinderella and and Snow White and things. So there were mixed reviews and a bad box office. And this actually, because of that, marks the last Disney adaptation of a fairy tale for 30 years. So up until The Little Mermaid, this is the last one. So that was shocking to me. I had no idea because you figure it's so popular and Maleficent is has her own series and the dragon is so important to in the parks and things. It is shocking to me to, to actually think about this movie as being not having done so well. Um, I'm, I don't know if I've ever personally watched it the whole way through, but it I don't know. It just seems so iconic. Yeah, I think Maleficent's probably the most popular thing out of that movie. And I yeah. think that's kind of, I, I think she came out of it, but not much else. I think maybe, I, and again, I don't know if I've watched it uh, recently or ever uh, the whole way through. I think maybe a lot of the characters are pretty flat and maybe that's why Maleficent's the most interesting of all of them. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just thought that was really Yeah, and I think the fact that this was the last movie based on a, a fairy tale for 30 years had less to do with the reception of this movie and probably more to do with other things happening with the company, Walt's death, the building of Disney world, you know, a lot of other things were happening transition that, I mean, they made other movies during that, that time. You lost, but that you lost some of that, that driving force. I mean, I think Walt was the big driving force behind a lot of these animated movies early based on fairy tales, you know, you know, based on these ideas and, and so I think I think there was other factors at play than just oh this one didn't do well so we need to stop making them you know based off of fairy tales. Hmm. So 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 those were the movies and again you know Disney I mean for the first 30 years of it of its existence was a a movie studio. It was an animation movie studio. You know now they're starting to change they're going into live action. The other thing is they're getting on this brand new medium that nobody's ever heard about called television. <laughs> Which is insane to think that, you know, ni- I mean, it's crazy to think 1950s is kind of when television first started. It hasn't even been around for 100 years. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and you know, now, I mean, TV, it's it's going into streaming. I mean, right. we have, it's almost a completely different medium. And in 50 years, people will be like, wait, what was cable, you know, type, type thing. Yeah. So... What so, was streaming? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the actors are just in my living room right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> right, yeah, with this hologram machine. So, you know, Walt was always kind of on the cutting edge of technology. He he worked with, he was the first one to do fully synchronized sound to a cartoon. 
He had he, he worked with surround sound for his movies. You know, he used the, the cinemascope to do the more widescreen. He he invented techniques for filming animation to create, you know, almost three D background effects and give a, a a depth to it so it didn't look like it was just flat hand-drawn animation. So he's always kind of on the cutting edge of everything. So it, it's really no surprise that he did jump into TV. So he actually started uh, with 1950. They did an hour in Wonderland special. It was uh, in partnership with Coca-Cola and it aired on NBC. And that was kind of their first foray into television. I like that word. Thank you. Hooray. into television um, but really it didn't start in earnest until the mid 50s so disney ultimately signed a deal with abc uh, studios which is interesting so this is the start of the abc partnership they would eventually own them own them in, in the 90s which we'll get to in four episodes here <laughs> not consecutive right but but they started with they started dealing with ABC and really this point in time kind of becomes intertwined with Disneyland a bit because the main reason Walt went into television is because he wanted to build Disneyland. Yeah. So I, I think it, if we jump a little bit to Disneyland here and a little bit of background, then we can jump back into some of the TV shows that may make sense. But we, we talked about in the 40s when he was at the Chicago Railroad Fair and <laughs> And got kind of an idea for a Mickey theme park. So between that and and there's other stories that on visiting uh, Griffith Park with his daughters, he got the idea for a Mickey Mouse park because they got a lot of letters from fans who wanted to tour the animation studio. So they wanted to come and tour the studio. Mm-hmm. And he obviously knew, hey, you can't tour a working studio. But the original idea was to build a small park across from the from the studio that would be mickey themed it would have some rides that people could come visit so that they could come and and tour that and not necessarily the studio wouldn't disrupt the process exactly because it's hard to it's hard to do studio tours like uh like how hershey has the the uh chocolate yeah i I think that's essentially what he was what he was trying to do kind of like a mickey world Uh you know type thing um, and even today, I mean, Disney doesn't do studio tours, whereas a lot of the other movie studios will do more regular tours. The The Disney tours are a lot rarer. You have to be a D23 member or, you know, win a raffle. You know, spe- it's very special to to get a tour there. So this was never something they, they really did. So, yeah, so the idea was just kind of a small park. The The company really didn't see a merit of, building a a park around mickey they didn't think it was something worthwhile but walt really thought it was a great idea so this all gets very confusing from (laughs) a corporate structure and i mean i won't go into a lot of details one because it was hard for me to even follow as i was as i was kind of reading this and and two it's probably extremely boring for a lot of people so, but it, it, but if you are interested in this, I mean, you can check out Wikipedia or you know, or just kind of Google some of this stuff, and and you can can read up on it. But essentially, what happened is Walt started his own company. So he started. It was called. Wait, wait, wait. he owned a company, and now he's starting another one. Yeah, he was part owner in uh, the Walt Disney Company. He like he had this idea for a theme park. The company said, hey, we don't think it's a great idea. We don't want to spend money on it. Sorry, not interested. So he started his own company uh, called Wed Enterprises. 
and he essentially owned the rights to his name, and then he licensed them back to the Walt Disney Studios. So that's how he kind of made money. So he, and it was a bit of a friction, I think, between him and Roy because Roy kind of viewed it as a way for him to take more money from the company for his family than mm-hmm. what kind of everybody else got. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, so it, it caused a little bit of friction. I don't think it was necessarily a, like a major. It wasn't a falling out. Yeah, they didn't have a huge falling out over it. But essentially, he charged the company the use of his name, and then he used that money to kind of essentially start Imagineering. So this huh. so this company, he, he took the money, and he kind of devoted his time to de- doing studies to develop a theme park, to developing ideas. Through the studies, they found out that the idea of building this small park across from the studios made no sense. They needed a much bigger theme park. They needed you know, hundreds of acres to do this, and it was going to cost a lot more money than they initially thought. So because of that, Walt needed additional investors. So he had his company invest. He had the Walt Disney Studios company invest in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of invested in it twice. <laughs> but then he needed additional money. So this is where ABC comes in. ABC invested $500,000 to help fund the construction of Disneyland in exchange for Walt producing television shows for their network. So they were a new wow. network. They were trying to get viewers. So that's how... the little collateral. There. Yeah. So that's how Walt and, and the Walt Disney Company got into TV. And that's how they got in with ABC. So they had a lot of shows and very successful shows. So it started in 1955. They had the Davy Crockett miniseries. And this was a very popular series. And it they filmed it in the Great Smoky Mountains. And the Ballad of Davy Crockett theme song became extremely popular. Um, you, you've probably heard it. Like Davy Crockett. That, that no, song. No, no, I need to hear you sing a few more bars to see if I know it. So it's Davy Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. <laughs> I can't say I've ever heard that one. So it was a very popular theme song, and and kind of the the merch. They had a lot of merchandise around this too. So there was a lot of uh, people buying like uh, Davy Crockett, like the coonskin caps and everything that he had. Oh boy, is that where is that where that started? Yeah. So. So those were very popular at the time, and it all came from this miniseries. And it actually, it, it's interesting. I read this. It stars Fess Parker, and interestingly enough, he played <laughs> Daniel Boone in a different show in the 1960s. So oh. he played two kind of American frontiersmen in his career. So talk about typecasting. Yeah, for real. After that, in 1957, they had a show called Zorro. And I think that a lot of us are pretty familiar with Zorro. He has been really popular um, in and out for a very long time. So Zorro was originally, he's based off of a character who was created in 1919. He was he appeared in a, in a magazine. So he went on to star in several different books, magazines, movies, and finally Disney picked him up in 1957. Well, I mean, I'm sure it started... Uh, before that talking about it but in 1957 the show started and it ran for two years so there were 78 episodes and four hour not four hour four space hour long specials so it was obviously very very popular 
I mean, we know that even there were some movies, I think, in the 90s or early 2000s. So Zoro is a really popular character. And I know it was pretty it was pretty pop. It was a popular thing at the time as well. Yeah, and so and, and both those shows, like you said, I mean, Zora ran for a couple of years. Davy Crockett ran for a couple of years. So even though they were popular, the, it, I mean, two it's, seasons back back then was extremely was, popular. It was like so. basically like having fourteen seasons of Supernatural back then. Right, right. <laughs> also during the fifties, uh, this is when the Mickey Mouse Club started. So if you go back and listen to our episode eight, we kind of go through. Oh yeah, the, we do a deep dive the whole history. But that started in nineteen fifty five. Again, yeah, we, we talked a lot about that. So you can go back and listen to that episode. But that started. And then also the show Disneyland, which kind of then morphed into the wonderful world of Disney, uh, was on ABC. So the Disneyland show was essentially behind the scenes showing the construction and the development of Disneyland. And then it morphed into the wonderful world of Disney, which is basically Walt hosting these shows, showing off everything Disney had. So it was a great way for them to promote movies they had and new rides they had and, and all of that sort of stuff and get people excited about disney while also kind it was of was walt being his own hype guy yeah exactly <laughs> while also yeah fulfilling the contract with abc so no like we said the alice in wonderland played on there and it, it hit much better success than it did in the theaters so people liked it a lot better when it was on tv exactly so all of that helped fund the construction of disney world so or I'm sorry, fund the construction of Disneyland. So Disneyland, I think you kind of alluded to it earlier. This is probably like the biggest shift in the company up into this point where they mm-hmm. they then go into theme parks and the park does so well, it starts to basically... Um, take on a life of its own. Well, yeah, it takes it takes on a life of its own and it basically outshines every other part of the Disney company so much. So, so as I was saying, the corporate structure gets very convoluted, but before the end of the decade, Walt Disney productions, which was the, the movie studio company buys out all (laughs) of the other shareholders in the Disneyland park, including ABC and Walt's, uh, you know, wed company. And I think there was one other investor. They essentially buy them all out before the end of the decade because it's doing so well. Now, Walt's company that he owned actually owned a couple of the rides specifically within Disneyland, which was very strange. So not only was it part owner in Disneyland, it actually outright owned the Disneyland railroad and the, which was open for day one. And then the monorail, which opened later in the decade, it owned both of those. And the Disney company didn't buy the rights back to those fully until like the 1980s. So they settled with the family to get the full rights back to those. But up until that point, I think they have to pay a royalty. Yeah, they had to like, yeah, they had to pay like a a percentage. So as I was saying, yeah, it's very, he's very interesting. It's interesting how he kind of seemed to eke out money from like the different shareholders. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, he built the railroad and we talked about his love for a railroad. So he, so he kind of, he built that in the monorail, you know, transportation. So he did that through his company. Cause again, it, it was essentially Imagineering. So, but when Disney company production company, you know, bought everybody out of Disneyland. They didn't fully own the rights to those rides until later. So let's hit the rewind button just a little bit, though, because we're talking about the park once it opens, and obviously it is a big smash success. But this, let's go back to where before the park opens. So it was seventeen million dollars whenever they built it, and it was one hundred and sixty acres of former orange groves, 
And when the park opened, there were 18 attractions and admission was only a dollar. Can you imagine if it was only a dollar today, how crowded it would be? Yeah. Well, I imagine in, I, I mean, mean yeah, turn, I mean, it's still, it's still not as much as it is today. Oh my gosh. No. Yeah. But, it, but it's a dollar, but you're right. I mean, it, they, they broke ground. It was built very quickly too. So they, they broke ground. Under, it was a year, right? They broke ground on July 16th, 1954. And it opened a year and a day later. On That's July incredible. 17, 1955. They developed that much land in that little time. And right. you figured and it probably only, wasn't cleared. And there was only 18 attractions. So, I mean, there, there wasn't as much to do in the yeah. parks as the there is today. The scale wasn't like it is today. But right. it still was the first of its kind. So people were probably pretty happy with yeah. those 18 attractions. But it was not done whenever it opened. I mean, they, they rushed to have it open. They opened it without it being completed. Mm-hmm. There are stories out there. I'm sure people have heard of this before, but that you know the, they poured the asphalt the day before, and it was so hot in California in July that you know women their heels were sinking into the asphalt. Um, and actually, there was an, another story that there was a. I found this as I was researching this episode that there was a plumber strike going on, and so they basically told Walt, "You have a choice. We'll either get the water fountains working or the toilets, but we're not going to get both." So Walt. So the water fountains had toilet water. No, no. So so Walt said, you know, make sure you have the toilets done. You know, people can just buy a drink, and I, I think people were a little bit upset about that that they had to purchase something. But I think that's a much better solution than not having working toilets. Yeah, I'll go with that one. Yeah. So and, and I think it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, maybe comment that hey, they they rushed Galaxy's Edge, or you know, sometimes they rush opening attractions. When they're not quite ready, why don't they wait until it's ready? Walt would have never done this, but I mean, the complete opposite is true. Walt would have opened it if the ride was half finished. Because I mean, if you look <laughs> at Disneyland, he pushed to get it done. He had it built in a year, which is incredible. And I mean, nothing that is ever done now. I mean, if you look at uh, Pandora, I mean, that took six years to build. That's a land. If you look at Galaxy's Edge from development to finishes, five or six years. And that's just a land. He built all of Disneyland in one year. Now development was longer, but I mean, they're, they're not built. It takes them years to build these lands. And yeah. And he, he opened it. He said, Hey, look, we don't have drinking fountains. That's fine. You know, the asphalt just got poured. That's fine. People are coming in. We're opening this thing. So I mean, he definitely would be all for, you know, opening these lands with not all the rides working or not everything being fully functioning. So, so, so a perfectionist, but that's interesting because early on in his career, we commented so much on how he was a perfectionist and how, you know, there was that scene from, I, th- what, I think it was um, Snow White or whatever that they wanted to redo and, and Roy was just like, no, like it's fine. Just leave it. The, they didn't have the money for it. Right. We don't have the money. It doesn't have to be perfect. This is still a technological marvel. And he wanted it to be perfect. It's interesting to hear that the same guy is now saying, you know what? This theme park's not 100% finished, but we're just going to, we're going to roll with it because it's, it's, uh, it, I'm a pioneer. People will just deal. And I think the difference is with a film, when it's done, it's done. I mean, they did go back and fix that scene of, of the shimmer of the prince. And so they did fix it in a re-release. But Walt knew that Disneyland was never finished, that yeah. you were constantly building and adding and things were changing, and that it was a work in progress at all times, that you were never going to say, okay, it's done. it's done, I'm finished. So I think he knew hey, this is going to constantly be evolving, so there is no perfection. So, perfection is just every day making it better. 
so essentially he's saying this is already the best thing out there so i will open it and allow everybody to enjoy it and i know that it'll continue to develop to develop yeah, from yeah, here. he knew that he knew that it was right. always gonna get better so he, he could always tinker with it he could always come back and say hey this could be better here this could be better here so it wasn't like it there was never perfection in it. Speaking of um, the fact that it wasn't quite perfect, I thought I thought this little tidbit was really funny. So in the summer of 1955, there were special invitations that were sent out for the opening of Disneyland on July 17th. And unfortunately, people counterfeited this pass. Yeah, so it was supposed, like, to, be, it was supposed to be a very limited engagement so that they could manage the crowds. But but you're right, the tickets right. were counterfeited. They were counterfeited, and it turned out 28,000 people showed up. Right. So can you imagine, I mean, if it's a limited engagement and then suddenly 28,000 people show up, that's going to be huge. And already they weren't quite prepared. So that would just be absolutely like disheartening for anybody working there. Yeah. And the tickets were actually counterfeited by the printing company. So they, there was no way to tell the difference between oh, no. legitimate so they tickets. Were legit. Yeah. There's no way to tell the difference between legitimate tickets and the counterfeit ones. So they had to let everybody in. It was like somebody just printed it out and they, and they passed it out at the time or anything. And yeah. And then, and on top of that, I think you had people jumping over the gates to get in. And so it's just, it, yeah, it, it became very crazy. And it was all televised. So they expected only a few thousand people there. They had TV cameras. So people were tripping over the TV cables oh, no. and running into the crowd. So the opening did not go well, <laughs> but it was a very successful. So like, like we said, I mean, it, it quickly became very popular, made a lot of money. That's why the Disney Studios company bought it out because – it was really funding so much of their growth, you know, and it just kind of grows to what it is today. I mean, as we go through the later decades, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how Disneyland has changed, but Walt quickly realized 160 acres that they built Disneyland on was not enough because he saw people building hotels around the park to take advantage of what he had built. And he realized, Hey, if I did this again, I would own a lot more land so that that way we could, we could control create a buffer. Yeah, we could create a buffer. We could own the hotels. We could expand. You know, he was coming up against expansion problems. So, which is why he turned his attention very quickly to the Florida project, right? Which would become, you know, Walt Disney World, which would, you know, kind of get, you know, in earnest in in the '60s. You know, he, he's going to start moving to that after Disneyland's been open a few years. But yeah, it it really punctuates the decade here of how Disney took kind of everything they built with animation. And they started merchandising. And then in the 50s, really just took advantage of these new mediums of TV, of people having more discretionary spending and wanting to travel and kind of seeing that and capitalizing on it with... with he really was a visionary. Like you think about somebody like Steve Jobs who said like, I know you want this. It doesn't exist yet, but I know that if I create it, people will come. He really was a, a version of like of that kind of person. Yeah, because I mean, theme parks weren't something that were... In existence. Yeah, that didn't exist. I mean, the term, you know, theme park really was created by Disney, essentially. You know, this idea that it, it was, everything was was linked in together. It, there were no, like, thrill rides there. I mean, it, it was just all, I mean, if you look at the original rides, the trains, they had, you know. The boat rides. Yeah, the boat rides. I mean, the storybook canals, some of the original ones. Um, you know, the monorail was, was relatively new, and that was, like, the first, monorail of its kind in the united states you know as, as a transportation system but the transportation system was a ride in itself you know every, everything kind of tied in <laughs> to that theme the music played into it so yeah i mean he he really was a visionary and it really did turn the company around 
I mean, you look at it today, theme parks are a huge part of the company in general. So, yeah. I mean, they're not the only part. I mean, everything else is, is kind of balanced out, but it's really interesting. The company just does a really good job of everything feeding into it. Like, there's so much corp, like synergy with everything that they do. You know, they put out something new, like a new movie, and then it, you see it into the parks very soon because it helps to generate that the popularity there. So, it, yeah, it's it's a genius. This idea was so genius of Walt. Yeah, definitely. And one other fun fact about Disneyland is that Steve Martin actually worked there uh, as a kid selling guidebooks. <laughs> so I'm sure there's a, probably a lot of other famous people. Nowadays, he'd be pin trading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of other you know famous people that work there, but, but Steve Martin kind of got his start there. So yeah, so I think overall, I mean, the 1950s are a really interesting decade. Yeah, they're <laughs> popping. And yeah, I mean, it really picks up. 40s were interesting, 50s were interesting. And it kind of, as we move on and get closer to today, I mean, more and more is just happening right. you know, through each decade. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, think, I think that kind of wraps up, you know, the main things. I'm sure we missed some stuff. You can't really talk about everything in, in all these decades, but, but we kind of touched on the major stuff. So definitely, you know, let us know if if you have any questions or if you think... Or if you're like, hey, this happened and yeah, you missed, and missed it, it and it was like huge. So yeah, and you like us know. I mean, we can, it, we yeah, can yeah. add a little addendum to the next episode. Yeah, and you'd like us to talk about it, definitely you know, uh, send, let us know. You can uh, reach out to us on Facebook. We're at Enchanted Ears Podcast or through our website, EnchantedEarsPodcast.com. You can uh, contact us there or submit a question uh, if you go to EnchantedEars.com. Send us an owl. EnchantedEars.com slash podcast question. <laughs> You can try sending us an owl. I don't know if, <laughs> how well that will work, but sure, go ahead and try it. So keeping keeping with the Game of Thrones, you can send. Well, they send. Ravens, no, 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 no. I was, I was Harry Potter. Yeah, I was doing Harry Potter. Okay. Well, I was thinking about Game of. Th- we talked about Game of Thrones earlier, so yeah, the, the Raven. You could send a Raven. Try Raven and owl and eagle, whatever. You can an eagle would be pretty cool. You can send it. See if it gets to us. If it gets to us, I will be impressed. And I would like to have an eagle as a pet. I'll I think it would be really cool. If you can get a bird to fly to us with your question, I think you'll be <laughs> the greatest super fan in the world. And Challenge you accepted. can you can run the show for a week. I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll figure something out. That's pretty impressive if you can do that. I'm not even sure I would know what to do, but um, but if you if you'd like to support the show, um, besides just asking a question or reaching out to us, um, you can do so by leaving us a, a review or a rating wherever you get your podcast. They're very helpful. That, that helps us kind of reach a larger audience. We're also on Patreon. If you would like to uh, support us there, you can get access to bonus episodes, kind of behind the scenes things. Uh, and again, I mentioned our, our Facebook already, but we're also on Instagram at Enchanteers Podcast as well. Thanks for lending us your ears. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great week. We'll see you here next Monday. Bye.